last week in which we're talking about gospel rhythms. And last week we talked about some of the patterns and habits that we need to establish that will center our lives around the person and the story of Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we continue our series, uh, what we're going to focus on this week is some of those habits or those rights that we both do personally and in our church that um, kind of overlap and start to shape our lives. And so that's kind of where we're headed this morning. And we have four things that we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about baptism. We're going to talk about living in a body. We're going to talk about food, uh, more on the spiritual side than on the physical side. And we're going to talk, lastly, about rest. So that's where we're headed this morning. And to start, we're going to start with baptism. And uh, as we start in this subject, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. If you're using one of our blue Bibles that we provide, it's on page 784, 784, baptism. What we're going to look at this morning as we look at baptism is the concept or the idea that we belong to and uh, are beloved by God. We belong to and are beloved by God. And I want to show you what I mean. Jesus, this is the text where Jesus is baptized, and the most fascinating thing we, we learn from this small little text, and as, from looking at its context, I want to read it to you, and then I want to make sure that you do not miss it. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And so John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. And it is in him that I am well pleased. What I want you to notice from this text, and it's the most beautiful idea, is that God the Father looks down on Jesus. He is baptized around when he's 30 years old, and Jesus really has lived 30 years of ordinary obscurity, right? Really, the only uh, thing that is fascinating about Jesus that we learn about in the Gospels is that Jesus was born and he was celebrated by shepherds and wise men as we just came out of the season. Luke tells us of one short story of when Jesus got lost when he was 12, although he really didn't get lost. He, he went back to the temple and just uh, surprised the scribes with his knowledge of the Bible. But other than that, Jesus has lived an ordinary life of obscurity in the house of Mary and Joseph as an apprentice to his uh, father as a carpenter, doing really nothing out of ordinary. And before Jesus feeds the 5,000, before he goes into the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days and is able to fast and still stay strong, before he gives the Sermon on the Mount, before he does anything grand or glorious, As he comes out, goes in and comes out of the waters of baptism, the heavens open and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because God the Father is not enamored with his son because of his accomplishments. He is enamored with his son because he is his son. And so this is just the idea that our identity, who we are, is is marked in Christ. Um, God loves us not because of what we have done or because of what we haven't done, but simply because we're his children and he loves us. And 
here's four just really beautiful verses that kind of talk about that. Um, the first is Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 17. And it says, The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a warrior who can deliver. He takes great delight in you. He renews you by his love. He shouts for joy over you. Isaiah 43, 4 says, since you are precious and special in my sight and I love you, I will hand over people in place of you, nations in place of your life. Isaiah 49, 15 through 16, it just says it's so lovely. Can a woman forget her baby who nurses at her breast? Can she withhold compassion from the child she has born? Even if mothers were to forget, I could never forget you. Look, I have inscribed your name on my palms. In Psalm 139, 17 through 18 reads, How difficult it is for me, this is the psalmist talking, to fathom your thoughts about me, O God. How vast is their sum total. If I tried to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And so I guess just thinking, and we don't think this a lot, but God loves us so much just the way that we are, not because of anything we've done or anything we haven't done. You know, and Bill and I were talking about this a little bit the other day, and um, it just reminded us of when our boys were born. You know, and so we've just, we've just gone through, well, <laughs> we have just gone through birth. <laughs> right. And it's hard. <laughs> so I hear. Um, but we have just gone through this experience, and this little person has figuratively and literally torn up my body and they hand him over to me and he hasn't done anything right and he has no purpose like I'm not hoping that he's going to do something one day like one day you will become a millionaire and take care of me in my old age do you know what I mean there's no hopes on this child there's nothing he's done or will done they just hand him over to me and I love him ridiculously like crazy Mama Bear, I love this little baby just because he's mine. That's all, just because he is mine. And we were talking about the Bible talks about God as being the perfect father. And so as a parent, like he feels that same love for us, except he's the author of love. And so it's perfect. And so it's deeper, richer, fuller love than even what I feel like that. That's how God feels about us. And so I just imagine sometimes, or I try to, like, what if I really lived like that in my day, thinking that God is enamored with me? Like, he thinks I'm amazing, just the way I am. Like, just the things that I'm doing, he gets a chuckle out of. Or the things that are breaking my heart, he's grieving with me on that because he loves me. And that's the identity that we have because of Christ. And so I think a lot of us just need to reflect on the question, why do you think God loves you? You know, why do you think he loves you? And for many of us, perhaps um, we went through experiences with our own parents where our, the love of our parents seemed a little stronger after we scored the goal or a little less after we didn't hit the home run, you know, or maybe love seemed dependent on whether we made the high honor roll or not, or, you know, whatever the thing is. And we get into a performance-based mindset and yet God tells us again and again in lavish ways that we just find hard to believe that he loves us with no strings attached, no conditions whatsoever. And baptism, as a right, 
is a one-time act, isn't it? We get baptized after we've placed our belief in Christ as a public declaration of our faith to say, I know that I belong to God, that he loves me, and I want you to know that it is my intention to follow him with my beliefs and with my behavior, right? And yet, if we're not careful, we will forget the message of our baptism. And the message of our baptism very simply is this, that we are belong to and beloved of God. We need to remind ourselves of our baptism. We need to remind ourselves of it often. And I don't mean what we are wearing, what people said, what I said. Very few people remember the things I say. I don't even remember the things I say half the time. What we need to remind ourselves is the theological reality that God loves us and that we are his child. If you haven't been baptized, it's an important rite. It's like a first step into uh, realizing all that God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ. And you need to remind yourself of it often. But if you have been baptized, you need to form a rhythm. You need to form a daily and weekly habit of reminding yourself, I am loved by God and I belong to him. What if you started every single morning just as regularly as you start your day with coffee? I don't do coffee. I hate it. But I am loved by God. I'm not into things I have to work hard to learn to like. You know what I mean? You know, acquired tastes. I'm impatient that way. Now, what would our life look like if every single day we remind ourselves, God loves me and I belong to him? The Apostle Paul tells us that if we belong to God, then in fact, we have entered into a new reality completely. He says it this way, into a new life. I want you to turn there, and I want to show you what I mean. In this particular text, Romans chapter 6, verses 4, 7, and then 11 through 14, it's found on page 915. The specific text that we're looking at is in the specific context of baptism. How once we are baptized, we have entered into the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, and now everything has changed. Listen to what the Apostle, Apostle Paul says about how our life is now different. Romans chapter 6 Verse 4, beginning. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 7, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So now, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer your bodies, uh, any parts of them, to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been bought, brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Doesn't that sound awesome? Wouldn't you love it if sin was no longer your master? And yet it does not have to be, right? Chuck Swindoll has this great illustration, uh, one of my preachers I used to listen to when I was in high school. He says it like this. When you teach your kid to drive, what you don't tell him is, yeah, you probably get in an accident the first time you go out there. So here's where the insurance is. And uh, here's my phone number. Here's a cell phone. Um, <laughs> You know, you're destined to be doomed, but just here's where all the stuff is. What do we teach our kids, right? We teach them. If you follow the law, that's important. 
and cheaper. If you follow the law, and if you obey the stop signs, and if you do what you're supposed to do, you should be okay. Things happen, but you should be okay. Right? But we, in our Christian life, so often just, I will sin. I'm just going to give into it now. And we don't need to do that. For we are no longer slaves to fear, and sin is not our master. And because of our baptism, we belong to the new life in Christ, and we are beloved of God. And we must, if we are to experience the joy that God has for us, be shaped by that. And if we are to be shaped by the new life in Christ, the only place we can be shaped in it, right, is in our bodies. It is in the way that we live in this everyday life, day after day. We must submit and give our bodies over to God because we belong to him and are beloved by him. And so this just kind of flows naturally into the second part, which is that our bodies are created to worship God. We were created with a purpose, and it was to worship God in, in every way. Um, throughout the, the history of religions in humanity, a lot of times you've maybe noticed that some of them will focus on kind of like the mental aspect of it. You know, like if you can achieve high enough, then you will, you know, Zen or Nirvana. The physical part, your actual body, is de-emphasized. What's important is your mind and what you believe. Christianity has never emphasized that. Christianity has always been about the whole person, body, mind, soul, and spirit. Judaism started with that, and then Christianity flowed out of that, and it's always been about all of our body. But even though that's been the case, it's interesting how the de-emphasis of our body has kind of worked its way into Christian beliefs, Christian thinking. Yeah, I mean, one of the earliest uh, Christian heresies was called Gnosticism, and the Gnostics believed it's very, very fun and complicated, and my wife told me to not talk about it very much, but um, the, 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 uh, the, the end of the day, what Gnosticism is all about is that there was this evil kind of God who created physicality, and that... Um, the spiritual or non-physical world is what really matters. And when the evil God created physicality, he enslaved the divine spark within us, within the body, the physical body. And so Gnosticism taught that to be freed from our body was to free our spiritual component, which is the only part that really matters. In fact, um, the Gnostics believed that Jesus was not even really body, you know? And the Apostle John in his epistles, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, his letters that he wrote to the church, many scholars believe are addressing this ancient heresy of Gnosticism that no, in fact, Christ was body, that he took on full humanity and full and retained full divinity, and that he paid for our sins, and that he justified and saved not just our soul spirit, but that he will save our bodies. And so the goal is not to try to escape our physical bodies one day, you know, like this is not our home, we're just passing through kind of thing. Christianity carries with it the idea that our bodies matter profoundly. It's very important the way we live in them. They're very important. They're intertwined. They're a part of it. And you even think about the season that we just came out of, Christmas, right? It's all about the incarnation, right? When Jesus, who is God, took on humanity to redeem all of humanity, all creation, all the physical matters. So if our body matters that much, then 
we need to start thinking a little differently about how we use our bodies, what we put into them, and what we do with our bodies. The Apostle Paul teaches something fascinating about this subject in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you want to turn there, it's on page 927. But he gives us a in completely different paradigm about why we are to use our bodies for certain things and not for other things that goes way beyond what our parents told us, which was just don't do it, right? Just don't do it is not Paul's answer, you know? And that was, <laughs> that was often the sex talk, right? <laughs> Growing up, just don't do it, right? But Paul does not do that. He says this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, if you're a Christian, who is in you, whom you have received from God, and you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor your God with your bodies. The answer for the Apostle Paul is why we do things, certain things with our bodies and why we don't do other things is because our bodies are both instruments of worship and are very, the very dwelling place of God the very dwelling place of God's spirit, that the spirit of God inhabits our bodies. This is why Christians are to be so thoughtful and careful about what we do with our bodies because our bodies are not just instruments of pleasure, although they are. They are instruments of worship, and worship, when done properly, brings pleasure. Do you see the difference? So we don't treat our bodies like garbage, for they are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We are careful about how we interact with other people's bodies because their body has the potential or is a dwelling place for God himself. And Christians are often kind of accused of two wrong views of the Christian body. Um, The first, again, kind of pulls into that whole idea of what just matters is your faith, your spirit, your body doesn't really matter. You're going to escape that one day, kind of floating on a cloud kind of thing. And the second view sometimes, and maybe you grew up with this, is that it's all about the body, and it's all about what the body does or does not do, okay? It should do this, it shouldn't do this, it shouldn't do this, it shouldn't do this kind of thing. Either one of those is a wrong emphasis on... um, on the view of your body, and Phil and I found a quote that we kind of giggled about. There was a journalist and a critic in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and um, he wrote about a group of Christians, you know, kind of this whole idea of ridding the uh, body of evil, and he said, he described this group of Christians as people with a haunting fear that someone, somewhere, might be happy. And so it's just kind of a a funny idea. And maybe you grew up in a church like that. I don't know. But neither of those is the right view of the body. Um, I think what people understand, but what Paul wrote about so often in the New Testament, is that our bodies are inseparable from our minds and our spirits, our souls. They all go together, and they're intertwined. And we found this great um, quote that kind of summed this up. And the author wrote this. She said, when we use our bodies to rebel against God or to worship the false gods of sex or youth or personal autonomy, we are not simply breaking an archaic and arbitrary commandment. We are using a sacred object. Remember, you're beloved, belong to God. A sacred object. In fact, the most sacred object on earth in a way that denigrates its beautiful and high purpose. But... 
When we use our bodies for their intended purpose in gathered worship, raising our hands or singing or kneeling, or even in our average days, sleeping or savoring a meal or jumping or hiking or running or having sex with our spouse or kneeling in prayer or nursing a baby or digging a garden, it's as glorious as a great cathedral being used just as its architect had dreamt it would be. So as Christians, you know, if there's one thing we can leave you with this, with this idea, it's that we just simply need to aim a little bit higher. And what I mean by that is I'm always having people come to me and saying, well, can I do this? Is this allowed? You know, and it's always in the context of drinking or sex or, you know, they've got a new boyfriend or girlfriend. Can I hold hands? Is that okay, Pastor? I don't really ever get asked that, right? <laughs> they do a good job of aiming higher there, you know. But uh, anyway, you understand what I mean. But we need to aim higher. The question itself of am I allowed to do this misunderstands the entire point of what we are saying. We are not saying that you're not supposed to have pleasure and so just go as close to the line as pleasure as you can, but that our bodies are meant for worship and when used properly, all those things that we just, she just read about, sex with a spouse, digging gardens, all of that is meant to be worship. It's when we've done and used our body within the context of what is right and good, what glorifies God, only then can we be satisfied. But yet, for many of us, when we hear, well, our bodies are really meant for worship, that just sounds boring to us, doesn't it? You have misunderstood everything that the Bible is trying to teach as it pertains to humanity and living in a body. We are meant to glorify and worship God in all of the things that God intends for us to use our body, and we are meant to be satisfied in it. The greatest aim of man, according to the Westminster Confession, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? This is the intention of the body. And then this idea of worshiping with our bodies, kind of this holistic worship, makes it uh, its way into the practices as a church. It started from creation and through the observances of the Israelite people. If you look at a lot of the feasts and the, the things that they did, and it's made its way into the church once that formed and all the history of that. You know, worshiping was never just believing the right doctrines. It engaged all of the senses of the body through singing, Dancing, art, architecture, candles, incense, bread, water, wine, kneeling, raising our hands, all those ways to creatively engage the senses because we're worshiping God in a body. And we want to continue to pursue areas of worship like this in our church too. And so what we've seen so far this morning is we are loved by God and we belong to him, that our bodies are intended to be instruments of worship, and so we need to have this different perspective about them all together. The third thing that we want to talk, which is connected to these other two, is the way that we then begin to look at how we sustain and nourish ourselves. This idea of food. Um, the Bible, you know, regularly talks, and I won't have you turn to these references, but it regularly talks about engagement with God as something that nourishes us in the same way that food nourishes us. And I'm like a food guy. I, I love food crazy. You know, I study food all the time. But the Bible is always talking about this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it talks about uh, that as Christians, we should be like newborn babies who yearn 
for milk from our mothers, you know, to be nourished by the word of God. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 5, the apostle or the unknown author of Hebrews, who we don't know who it is, he says, uh, I long for you to move from milk to meat, you know, so that you can grow up and become mature, you know. Um, you know, most of us don't live on formula our whole life, right? We graduate from formula, although, not to call him out, but Dr. Raganisi once told me that you can get all of your nutrition from formula, right? No, that's not what he said. He said breast milk. Oh, breast milk. Okay. <laughs> breast milk. I was kind of hoping you weren't going to bring that up in this uh, yeah, yeah. thing, but oh, good. But I lost my whole train of thought. Never mind. <laughs> And now that new idea brings all new trains of thoughts that I'm not going to go down. Which is why I didn't want right. to go there in the first place. All right, so let's just continue. So, milk to solid food. Jesus, uh, when he is... T- <laughs> Jesus, when he is talking in John chapter 6, Jesus, when he's talking in John chapter 6, says, I am the bread of life. Um, and then he gives this bizarre teaching, you know, this bizarre teaching that if you want to continue to follow me, you must eat my bread flesh and drink my blood, when which tons of people stop following Jesus any longer, you know, because they said to themselves, you can just almost read it in the text, even though it's not there, you can see it in between the lines, where the people say to themselves, I really like the stuff where you healed my mom, and I really like that teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm not really fascinated by the cannibalism thing, so peace out, you know, but um, Jesus isn't saying you have to be cannibals, what is he saying? You have to be nourished by him. And of course, in all four Gospels, Jesus, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in all four of the stories of Jesus, Jesus says, on the night before he's going to be betrayed and crucified, he says, from now on, I'm leaving, but from now on, do this in remembrance of me. And what is this? Eating bread and drinking wine and symbolic remembrance of his broken body and shed blood. And what does he, Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me until we eat this meal again together in my kingdom. Historically, Christian worship has always involved these elements of engagement with the word of God, allowing the word of God to be read and responded to, and secondly, communion or the table in which we go to the table and we are transformed and shaped by it. These two things have been what the church has gone to for thousands of years, for healing, for unity, and in other words, for for nourishment. If one of the dominant images of spiritual growth is the nourishment of food, then I would suggest that we need to change the way we look at our spiritual life. In other words, we need to be reminded often to eat spiritually. We need to look at our spiritual life with different eyes, right? What do we do when we go to the fridge and the food in our fridge isn't exciting, right? Just between services, there was a guy, he came up to me and he said, we put our leftovers in Tupperwares and we call our Tupperware food the things that we don't want to throw away for two weeks, right? <laughs> we, we go into our fridge and sometimes we look in our fridge and we see what's there and we're not excited by it. And if we have enough money and we don't care about wasting, then we just go and get pizza or order out Chinese or something, right? But let's say for a moment that you didn't have that option and you look in the fridge and it looks unappealing and you're not really interested in eating what is there, what would you do? You wouldn't just go hungry because what do you know? You know that you need food. 
You need to be nourished. And so you eat. Sarah and I have this little thing that we often say, if we go to a restaurant and we didn't love the food, or if I make a meal or she makes a meal that wasn't our favorite, we'll say to each other, what did you think about the food? And we'll say, well, it filled the hole, right? In other words, what we're saying is it nourished us, but we didn't love it. It nourished us, but it didn't excite us. And yet, so many of our meals are like this, aren't they? Nourishment that is forgettable, but nourishment nonetheless. And yet, when we look at our spiritual life, we look at it with different eyes sometimes. We never forget to eat. Why? Because our body will rebel against us if we don't. It'll start to growl, you know? We never forget to drink. Why? Because in a short period, we'll die. We never forget to sleep. Why? Because our body just simply shuts down and won't function anymore. Now, some of you may ignore sleep for too long, and you need to work on that. But we can't just not sleep. You go a certain amount of time without sleep, and you're legally considered drunk, right? Isn't this what they tell us? I've never tried it. I never even did an all-nighter in college because I wanted to sleep. No all-nighters. I went up late, but no all-nighters. And my roommate in college, we were awesome. He went to bed most nights at 9.30, so we were really living it up in college. Now, I stayed up to a crazy time of 11 most nights. Now, here's the deal. The same is true of us spiritually. If we do not eat, we die. If we do not drink, we die. If we do not sleep, we die eventually. The same is true spiritually, but the cues feel different. But some of you, because you've not been trained to see the cues, are dying and ignoring it spiritually. The cues are different, and we ignore them. We need the word, or we begin, become malnourished spiritually, and we die. We need each other, the church, or we begin to become malnourished, and we begin to shrivel in our hearts and die. We need communion because we need the nourishment and the thanksgiving and the unity and all the things communion brings. We need to remember that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. And we need to remind ourselves that we will eat this meal once more with Jesus and his kingdom physically. How do we respond then when we find the word of God itself to be sometimes perplexing, right? And don't we sometimes? Usually when you get to Exodus in your, day, your yearly Bible reading program, right? How do we respond when we find the Bible perplexing, dry, or boring, or even unappealing? How do we respond when we find the church to be off-putting and unappealing? My suggestion is if we see spiritual food the way we see physical food is, we eat nonetheless. We must receive nourishment. We've had a wrong focus when it comes to our spiritual lives. We started to look at our spiritual lives as something that should always be exciting and always should be um, sizzling and provocative. And yet, so much of our spiritual life is not. So much of our spiritual life is not just consumeristic, that which sells excitement, adventure, shocking spiritual experience. So much of it is a slow and consistent faithfulness in the same direction, right? Eugene Peterson wrote a book by this, almost this exact title, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Nourishment. Taking our food. John Piper, one of, uh, said something that really has stuck with me in his life. That he said this, that he has known incredible times of dryness in the word of God, but he's always stayed in the word. 
because he says, I cannot guarantee to you that studying the word of God will always fill your heart with warmth and joy. I cannot guarantee that you will always feel on, feel on cloud nine, but I can guarantee you that you will shrivel up and die if you do not engage in the word of God. And I can guarantee you will shrivel up and die if you do not engage in his church. I am convinced that on a spiritual level, that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives in ways that we do not always see or feel, and that this dynamic is happening all the time. The Spirit of God is always at work. And sometimes we haven't trained our eyes to see him. There's this fascinating story, and you should read it later. It's in 2 Kings chapter 6. I'll do my best to not tell you all the details and stick to the pertinent points. There was a prophet, his name was Elisha. He was being chased by uh, the Arameans because he had, Elisha had made himself a nuisance in their eyes. You can read why if you go to the text. It's awesome. And the Arameans have finally trapped Elisha in a little city. I believe it was called Dothan. And him and his servant have gone to sleep, and they wake up the next morning, and the entire city is surrounded by their enemy, the army of the Arameans. And the servant comes and wakes Elijah up and says to Elijah, Elisha, they are all out there and we are trapped. What are we going to do? And Elisha turns to his servant, and some of you will remember this story, and he says to him, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than they who are with them. That's a really weird thing to say when an army surrounds the city you're at, Yes. And Elisha prays to God, God, open the eyes of my servant so that he can see. And when he prays, his servant looks around and he no longer sees the Arameans by themselves, but he sees an angelic army of chariots and warriors surrounding them and protecting them. What I find fascinating about this story is that Elisha has trained himself through nourishment and through staying in connection with God himself to see things that other people do not see. When you go through difficult times, remember that little quote I used in that Revelation series, that you lose perspective on your life because of your difficulties. Remember, it's really hard to see God's perspective on history when you're up to your ears um, in alligators in the swamp. Do you remember this? Sometimes our vision cannot be trusted. And how do we improve our vision? Through nourishment, through seeing, through staying connected to the Spirit of God. And there's no way we can do so other than engagement with God himself. There are all kinds of times, there are all kinds of times when we are being nourished and we may not even feel like it. You know, how do we measure what doesn't happen? Does this make sense? I think the value sometimes of church and of the word of God and of preaching is that we, we, we avoid going down pits that we otherwise may have, would have, otherwise might have. But how do you evaluate and judge what didn't happen? How do you, when you're healthy, uh, you don't ever, when you're healthy, you never even think of your knee, right? Because your knee is just there and you just does what you want. But if you have knee problems, my right knee has been bothering me a little bit lately because I played soccer, and I'm 37. When my knee is bothering me now, I think about it all the time, every stare. You see? I'm all right. I just need to lose weight. Now, (laughs) here's the deal. How do we measure what doesn't happen? We need the nourishment so that we stay healthy. 
We need to get in the rhythm of being nourished spiritually because our rhythms shape our desires, don't they? Our rhythms shape our desires. And we need a greater desire for God's word and for God's people. We need, we need it for our own sake, for our joy and for our growth. And there's one more rhythm that shapes our desires, and it is an essential one that we so often forget. And this is the rhythm of rest, which I guess if you were following a musical thing would be a, a pause, but learning how to pause. Um, the idea of slowing down and resting is one that our culture doesn't seem to value very much, or if it does value it, it seems like we can't figure out how to grasp a hold of it. So often we run from activity to activity, and we um, kind of wear our unused vacation time as a badge because we haven't taken vacations, and we fill every moment with background noise so there's no quiet. And the rhythm of our society tells us that we should add one more thing to our schedule and that being busy is just our stage of life and that we need to keep up with everyone else because then our kids are going to miss out on opportunities. And so we go about our days driving from event to event and working and cleaning and cooking and parenting and logging miles and filling calendars. And do you ever feel like you've kind of lost something along the way? But you know what? You kind of miss it, but you're too busy going somewhere else or doing something else to even take the time to figure out what it is. It's kind of like you've gotten on this merry-go-round and you're going around and around and you can't figure out how to get off. I feel like that sometimes. I can't figure out how to get off of the merry-go-round. Author G.K. Chesterton would say that we have sinned and grown old. Sinned and grown old and become dulled to the wonders all around us. We're so busy that we don't have time to appreciate the beauty and the enjoyment and the reality of the goodness that is in our lives. And so the rhythms that we march to form us into a people who have lost the childlike wonder we're anemic because we've been drained of the joy. And if we're honest enough, if we can slow down for a minute, we're completely exhausted. And this is the beauty of the gospel, of following the life of Christ, because it invites us to a different rhythm. And this is what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And you know, from the beginning of creation, when God instituted a day of rest, he set a pattern of work and rest for us, and it's one that's been carried on through the Jewish calendar, and then once the church sprung up after the resurrection of Jesus, it's been carried on to the church year, sometimes referred to as Sabbath, if you've heard that word before. And it's a day in which as much as possible, we're meant to cease from that which is necessary and to embrace that which gives life. You know, and I was sharing earlier, I, it kind of made me giggle because part of me kind of likes to be ceasing from that which is necessary. Okay, boys, you are on your own on Sabbath day. Mom is whatever. You know, we can't quite do that. Like there's some things obviously we have to do. But as much as we can, choosing to slow down, to delight in the creation, to savor, to enjoy, to sleep, to heal, to just listen to the quiet. For most of us, this isn't something that comes very naturally. Learning to rest is a practice that we have to learn. It's something that we have to be as intentional about creating as a habit as like exercises. 
But as we let ourselves go and let go of our agendas and carve out a little time for just pure enjoyment, for just being with the people that we love, for just doing nothing sometimes, we find that we're able to find the beauty in our lives again in the day-to-day, and we're refreshed to live, not just exist, in the days that we've been given. And far from making us lazy or hedonistic, embracing this idea of Sabbath rest and enjoyment allows us, honestly, to better reflect God in the way that he is and to better live like Christ. Now, I just want to throw in this quick caveat because I feel like sometimes we say these things that sound so great, but then real life is what most people are thinking about. And we're in real life, so I just don't want you to hate me as I'm saying all this. Um, I am romantic and idealistic, but this is something that is actual real to life. Thank you, Bill. And it's this. This idea of rest looks differently from personality to personality and life stage to life stage. Someone who is working has a different schedule than someone who's not working. Parents have different responsibilities than those without kids. Single parents have all of that responsibility on them. Extroverts need less time alone than introverts do. I'm an introvert. I need a lot of alone time. And so I'm not saying that this rest is like a one-size-fits-all, has to look the same way for everybody, okay? This is something that you have to decide and you figure out. So maybe it means that for a young mom in this stage of life, you relish your five-minute coffee break, the coffee that you keep warming up and up in the microwave all day. You remember those days? Um, And you read a novel while you're nursing, and that's what a little bit of rest looks like for you. Maybe it means that a family says no to another after-school activity. Maybe it means that you don't turn on the TV after a certain time and you go to sleep instead. Or you let the laundry sit a little bit longer because it is always going to be there, and you take the dog for a walk instead. Whatever it is, maybe it's picking up a hobby something you've never tried but you've always wanted to do. Whatever it is that you enjoy, work to build a rhythm of rest into your life. We're all better for it. We really are. One author, she wrote of choosing to rest, and she said, one of the most intense healing experiences of my life came as a total surprise after I simply made space to enjoy something for the sake of enjoying it. And so it refreshes us, and it helps us to go on. And there's a a lovely scene in um, Tolkien's book, The Fellowship of the Ring. And if you're familiar with it, then you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, I am a nerd, so just bear with me on this a little bit, okay? (laughs) So the characters in The Fellowship of the Ring have been hunted by evil, and they're worried, and they're exhausted, and they're on this quest that they think is probably not going to be successful anyway. And so they've taken this break in this elven village that's hidden in the mountains called Rivendell. And it's this place of true rest in just, in just the realest sense. And this is what Tolkien writes about it. He says, For a while, the hobbits continued to talk and think of the past journey and of the perils that lay ahead. But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have any power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each good day as it came, 
taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. Isn't that so beautiful? And this is the idea of what rest does for us. And when you live by a gospel rhythm, it means shaping our lives around rest. And so as we conclude, our challenge really is we've given you four things to think about, right? Baptism. We are beloved and belong to God. Uh, Body. We live in a body and it's an instrument of worship and it's really the very dwelling place of God. Food. We need to be nourished. We need to regularly be nourished and look at food and spiritual growth in a different, steady pace and rest. We need times of rest. And each of us have different areas that we struggle with the most. You know, this week, uh, what I would like you to do is choose one of these four things and really focus in on it this week. I can tell you the one I'll focus in on would definitely be baptism and coming to the reality every single morning and starting my day with the uh, recognizing that I belong to and I'm beloved of God because it's so easy for me to fall into a performance-based mindset. Um, But choose one of these things. Really focus on it this week and ask yourself, how would my life be different if I change in my outlook on this perspective, on on this thing? Would you stand with me as we conclude our services this morning? And so now, go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And share the gospel. And may the love and the power of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.